Welcome to the very first episode of Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We are incredibly psyched to launch this. We have felt for a long time that there's a community of people out there that we are part of that love this stuff. I mean, oftentimes when people talk foreign policy and NatSec, it sounds boring and somber, and it shouldn't because these stories are sexy and cool and they really matter. And our hope is to kind of walk through that week after week after week. And we hope people who subscribe and listen will hit us up on Twitter and Facebook and email because this is meant to be more than a podcast and it should be a conversation that goes two ways. And we're really thrilled. Uh, with me in the studio are my colleagues, Jen Williams, the deputy foreign editor who's rocking pink hair Woo! for reasons that are not entirely clear. Because pink hair, that's the reason. Well, it seems reasonable. <laughs> and, uh, and Zach Beecham, who's not rocking pink hair. But he wishes he was. But wishes he was. We are really happy. And what just sounded like champagne was not, even though (laughs) journalists would drink early in a day, we are not going to drink this early. It is instead seltzer because, of course, Vox, where this is the drink of choice. Hipsters. Yeah, would be. And there are a lot of them. So let's kind of dive right into it. Part of what we'll find ourselves doing each week, I think, is dismantling conventional wisdom because it is so often blazingly and astoundingly wrong. And- it was wrong on the topic we want to really get into today, which is Syria. When Syria really went off the rails, I mean, this is now a civil war five years in, at least half a million dead, probably more, millions of refugees, borders have been erased, cities have been erased, a disaster, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. But the wisdom was Russia got involved to protect Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria. The U.S. and some of its allies in the Gulf were funding basically militias to fight ISIS, kind of sorted, also fight Assad. But Russia went in to protect Assad. The U.S. and its allies were just sort of trying to get Assad out. And that's been the state of play for some time. We'll get into that in a moment. But the big thing was when Russia got involved, would there ever be a point where the U.S. was fighting Russia? Terrifying. Or fighting Assad? Also kind of terrifying. And people thought, no, nah, that, that can't happen. But now it is. And we've had just in the past couple of weeks, the U.S. shot down a Syrian plane. The U.S. shot down a bunch of Syrian drones. So basically, the U.S. is now functionally fighting Bashar al-Assad. And Russia, which turns out not to like this, has basically said, we will target anything in Syrian airspace, wink, wink, the U.S. So we're not yet at a point where they're shooting at each other, but we are at a point where that's no longer unimaginable. And I find that itself unimaginable. What's amazing is like this is a natural outgrowth of the American strategy as it existed beforehand, right? The U.S. had this goal where— It was destroy ISIS, take away ISIS's territory. And now ISIS, in fact, is losing territory. That strategy has succeeded. The U.S. has partnered with Kurdish forces and their allies on the ground to attack ISIS territory. They're currently in the process of retaking Raqqa, which was the uh, capital of ISIS's caliphate in eastern Syria. But Assad is near there, too. And Assad wants that territory back because he wants to put his country back together. And so now you have the situation where there's shrinking territory in Syria to be taken— And the U.S. needs to figure out whether it wants to deny that territory to Assad and give it to its allies or stay away from fighting Assad as it has in the past. And it's just not clear that the Trump administration has a thought-out policy on this. Right. So I think that's the the biggest issue is like the lack of of clear strategy. Say what you will about Obama's completely hands-off, let's do like the bare minimum possible that we could get away with kind of policy. It was a policy, right? Like, it was a strategy. A lot of people disagreed with it. But there was, like, clear, you know, this is what we're doing. This is why we're here. This is what we're not doing. And right now, it seems that, like, we're just completely rudderless. And there was a really great piece I read um, just the other day from uh, War on the Rocks. Um, Aaron Stein, I think, wrote it about how, like, tactics are essentially driving a strategy right now and how problematic that is. So what we've seen in the last, like, 
couple weeks is, um, you know, the U.S. military, you know, shooting down like Syrian drones and kind of responding. And the way they've described it and and justified it as saying that this is like force protection, right? Like, so we saw a threat that was like threatening to, you know, our people and our allies and our bases um, or, you know, our operating areas. So, you know, we fired or, you know, we took action. That can get us into a really big problem because like if we're firing on like the Assad regime, like if that's part of our strategy, if we're targeting Assad, like that's that's fine. Like that's a dis- you know that's a discussion we can have and that's a decision we can make. But the fact that we're just doing it without having an actual strategy is is really really scary. So let's like dive into that a little bit more because buried in that is something that's bigger than Syria, but is really interesting and most dangerous in Syria, which is Obama micromanaged the wars. I mean, there's no debate. Even right. other Democrats say they micromanaged. And in the Pentagon, there was a lot of fury. They were like, "Back the hell up! Like we know what we're doing. We want to have." Decision making. Yeah, we're like, the generals. We're the generals. Right. So you know. So yeah. so back up. And and he wouldn't. Trump. It is not just a small degree of difference. It is literally the opposite. Where he has given the generals total authority. And what that means is in Afghanistan, a U.S. general asking permission of no one dropped the biggest bomb other than an atomic bomb that we've ever dropped. And what it means in Syria is, the Pentagon has taken steps that previously would have required the president's direct sign off, like shooting down a Syrian plane. On their own. And now there's reports, and I think accurate, given the people who've written them, that there uh, is a push within the Pentagon to build bases inside Syria. You know, small ones. We're not talking about 20,000-person bases. Outposts, right? Right, but little outposts. And so you've got—these are big things. These aren't like sort of iterative steps. This is the U.S. directly, directly confronting Bashar al-Assad, and there's no discussion of it as far as I can tell. Right. I think, like, just to kind of back up and, like, lay out kind of how we got here and, like, what's going on. So— um, just for for listeners who maybe haven't been following this, so like in Washington, basically like the two kind of big Syria camps were like the pro-intervention and like the anti-intervention, right? So like we need to, I mean, that's, you know, kind of in a general sense. The people who wanted to intervene, it was pretty obvious why, you know, we need to get rid of Bashar al-Assad, we need to- um, Wait, So it's, but it's more like pro-intervening uh, against Assad versus right, intervening right. anti-that, right? Most people agree that right, we should not be bombing ISIS. ISIS. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Okay. That's a good point. Thank you for clarifying, Zach. Um the, the pro kind of Assad, like take Assad out um, camp is a pretty kind of clear reasoning, right? Like he's a really bad guy. He's bombing, you know, his civilians, barrel bombs and using chemical weapons and, and chemical warfare. But the anti-interventionist, like the biggest argument there, and like that's something that I think we really need to kind of lay out a little bit because that's kind of what we're talking about now. So like the biggest argument against doing that was like the fear mainly, like the biggest one was that we could end up in an actual shooting war with Russia, right? Like, a nuclear power. Well, I, right? I mean, before, but but some of this debate happened before Russia got involved. So right, right. I mean, the initial parts of it were you could have a power vacuum. You know, you're not going right, to and you don't want to know is, what's going to come next. Right, and then um, you get an Iraq style quagmire. Right, absolutely. Right. Plus, responsible. You have for weapons it. flooding into Syria, and nobody knows where the hell they go. Right, after. totally. And yeah. then Russia came in, and then right. So yeah, no, absolutely. Shit um, got real scary. Yeah, shit exactly. got really scary. Like that was like even the people who were like kind of cool with intervention were like, oh shit, okay, like we need to maybe be careful because like it's literally like a nuclear rival, and we really don't want to get into a shooting war, and like. That's a really serious argument, and that's something that we would, like, need to sit down strategically and think through. And Like, is this something we're willing to risk? Are American interests in Syria, like, that important? Or is the humanitarian mission or whatever that important that we want to risk, like, potentially getting into a shooting war with a nuclear power? And that's the discussion that we're not having. We're just getting into that shooting war without actually having thought through the consequences and whether that's something we actually want to do. And that is terrifying. And what else is really important here is that for while the U.S. and Russia have both been bombing in Syria, they've been doing this thing called deconfliction, where they talk to each other 
uh, through secured channels and try to really rigorously make sure their planes don't go in the same places. But right now, with this tension over shooting down Assad aircraft, the deconfliction system is starting to break down. It, it sounds like, we're not sure, but it sounds like the Russians aren't really talking to the Americans on it. Right. Right. And I heard one report, it was in the New York Times, but I still don't know if it's true, that the backup deconfliction line is an unsecured Gmail account. So, like, that's what they do if the secure line isn't working, is they shoot each other, like, a Gchat message or, like, a quick email. I mean, at least ISIS uses Telegram. Like, yeah, they should, they should try something. WhatsApp, okay. maybe? <laughs> right. Like, get with the modern world here. Right. Use Slack, like a real media company. <laughs> uh, and so, like, if that's not working, then what happens if the U.S. aircraft and a Russian plane show up and they're bombing in the same area, right? We, we've had Russian planes buzz American planes in other areas, but this time they're, you know, they're using their weapons. It's really, really serious. And it's not, it might not even be a matter of policy of Trump being like, okay, it's cool. Or even a general saying, it's cool. You can bomb the Russians. It's just, there are two people whose lives are at risk and one might shoot each other. And who knows how that goes? I'm really glad you flagged that. There are kind of like two tracks there. And Jen, you kind of hit on one of them, um, which I'd like to dig into a little bit. So you're making a distinction between tactics and strategy. Right. I think a lot of people, sometimes myself included, won't know what that means. So Let's talk through what that means. But also, it seems like you have this one issue of intentional conflict. And then this other issue, Zach, as you mentioned, of just like unintentional, something happens accidentally and it just really spirals out of control. But let's start with the first one, like the tactics and strategy. Why do they differ? What does one mean? What does the other mean? Right. So, I mean, this is going to not be like a technical military, like I'm sure military people, including my boyfriend, will probably be like, oh, I don't know if that's correct. But like, <laughs> actually, he'll tell me I'm awesome because he's great. But hi, Mark. Um, hey, Klaus, what's bro? <laughs> do you even Thucydides trap? <laughs> so basically, like in like a general sense, strategy is like the big giant overarching plan that you have to connect essentially like your means and ends, right? Like you figure out like, what is your goal? What are your, your interests here? What are you trying to accomplish in like the long term, like the big giant 30,000 foot view and tactics and you have operational kind of in the middle, but like tactics are basically like the stuff on the ground, how you like carry that out. So when I talk about like, there's a disconnect between tactics and strategy or the tactics are driving strategy, like the tactical thing is, like, we need to shoot down this drone that's coming at us, right? And, like, it's a threat. We need to do that. And, like, that's a smart tactical decision. I'm not going to second-guess the generals on that. Like, if there's a drone that's, like, threatening you or, you know, troops that are threatening, like, you need to take action to do force protection, right? But, like, if that's not connected to, like, a broader strategy, what are we doing? And, like, will that interfere with the strategy because we're firing at Syrian, like, army, Syrian military Assad's forces, is that, and it is, you know, getting us more deeply involved in the Syrian war, whereas, like, on the ground, a tactical decision made sense, but it may not have made sense from, like, the larger strategic plan, and, like, there isn't a larger strategic plan, which is the problem. So you don't even know how to, like, factor that in. So you're basically just, like, operating, like, from day to day with no end goal in sight, which is not how you want to carry out a war. So you're telling me, because uh, this will shock, I think, everyone, myself included, that when Donald Trump during the campaign said he had a secret plan for defeating ISIS that he would bust out right after the election, he doesn't have one? It's like dumb Nixon, right? So <laughs> Nixon has a secret plan for ending the Vietnam War, which was give up. Also kill lots of innocent people, but then give up after you kill lots of innocent <laughs> people. And Trump's is like, I don't know, man. I'm president now. Uh, let the generals handle it. Right. And he did say things like that, but let the generals handle it, not as for the reasons Jen was just describing, not a strategy. 
And now you're seeing there was a report in the Washington Post today that we sort of talked about before we taped this. It said that there's a divide between the Trump administration and the Pentagon to a degree about whether to set up these bases and to try to push into eastern Syria, which is, by the way, like desert. It is not strategically valuable. But the Trump administration, or at least some factions in it, we don't know who, right. seem to want to try to risk a confrontation with Assad over it. That's, again, it's not really like a broader thought-out strategy. It's just they seem, I don't know, it seems like they think it's a launching pad to fight ISIS. Right? Is that right? That I think it's sort, of, it's sort of less a, necessarily a launching pad and more a way of trying to like put U.S. troops, I hate to say this, in the middle, but basically put them in the middle so that you don't have this sudden like Assad push, as you were saying before, to just retake what had just been cleared of ISIS. What's interesting, though, to me about this is like there are cities whose names we kind of all hear again and again when we're talking about Iraq, Syria. We talk about Baghdad. We talk about Mosul. We talk about Damascus. We talk about Raqqa. And now there's like this other random new city mm-hmm. that matters, Al-Tanf which is the city in the east, eastern part of Syria, you know, Zach, where you were referencing a second ago, you've got U.S. troops in it or right near it. You have U.S. allies on the ground right near it. And that's where when the U.S. began to shoot down first the Syrian plane and now the drones, it's because the plane was flying towards this random city. And so, like, you look back at moments in history where there's these little events that don't seem huge in the moment, but then when history is written, people are like, holy hell, that was actually really important. What happened in this tiny city none of us had heard of, I hadn't heard of, might actually end up being hugely important because this is what has put us in direct conflict with Syria and theoretically in direct conflict with Russia, this little random city. Right. Like, I think there's that old saying that, like, something like war is how Americans learn geography. But, like, it's <laughs> it's, it's actually, harsh. like— Harsh. <laughs> but, but harsh fair. but fair. Harsh but fair. <laughs> but, like, but honestly, I mean, I think, you know, and that's something that we kind of— are seeing in Syria and it's something that we're seeing in Iraq. But like the thing is that like there are really smart analysts who know where Tanf is, right? Like there are really smart people who on the ground and who study this for a living and who do have like grand strategies that are thought out. The problem is that we don't seem, and by we I mean the Trump administration, meaning just Trump, doesn't seem to be like interested in in relying on or like even consulting with that kind of expertise. I mean, there are like, you know, I used to work at Brookings, like there are people who spend their entire days crafting, like, really smart, well-thought-out strategies and, like, debating, like, is this the best thing? Like, what are the drawbacks? Like, what are the consequences if we did X versus Y? There are a lot of really smart people who work on this. There are a lot of Syrians, expats and in Syria, who work on this that would like to have a say in, like, how their country is governed and, like, dealt with going forward. Like, there are a lot of really smart people. The problem is, like, we're just not talking to them. Like, it just seems like we're kind of just fly by the seat of your pants. I, I want to push back on that a little bit. It's not that there are—I mean, it, I agree with you. There are lots of smart people who work on this, but none of them have good solutions to the problem right. in Syria. No, absolutely. Right, Like, there's risks on either side. There if you, are no good yeah, solutions. Yeah, exactly. This problem, right? Right, it's a horrible war with multiple different sides, and there's no real good guys. Right. Right, there's no one faction. Even the moderate rebels that we talk about are aligned and often fight alongside with al-Qaeda. So why why don't you actually, like, walk us through these random rebel groups as acronym light as you can, but but just, like, (laughs) walk us through who's fighting. We've got Russia, the U.S., and go. Right. Okay. So— How long have you got? Quick and dirty, right? So you have groups that are aligned with the Free Syrian Army, roughly, which is what we normally define as the moderate rebel groups. And these are groups that are mostly focused on fighting the Assad regime and don't have a, like, super overtly Islamist agenda. 
Then you've got groups that are not quite terrorists, but are, or at least not quite anti-American jihadists, but are pretty Islamist, like Ahrar al-Sham. Right, right, like the nationalist jihadists, right? Yeah. Like, like, within Syria, they have a jihadist program, but they're not, like, transnational in, like, an al-Qaeda sense. Yeah, they they don't want to, like, bomb Washington, D.C. Right. Right, and so those those people— are aligned with the moderate rebels, and they're clearly entangled. And they're also sort of entangled with the group formerly known as Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda franchise there. Now, ISIS has managed to piss off all of these people, and a sort of separate thing, basically because ISIS's strategy is kill everyone that is not ISIS, which turned out remarkably to be a dumb idea, (laughs) and is a large part of why they're losing. Um, So you've got those guys. You also have uh, the various different Kurdish groups who are based in the north of Syria, near the Turkish border. And these people are mostly focused on keeping ISIS out of their territory and creating an independent Kurdish state called Rojava in northern Syria. Right. Right. So that's their goal. They don't really care about the uh, Assad versus rebels fight. They've sort of had a detente with Assad for most of the conflict because Assad basically wasn't worried about retaking their territory at that point in time. But this isn't sustainable, right? And so the group that Assad planes were about to attack when the U.S. shot one of them down— was aligned with the Kurds. It was a Kurdish-Arab partnership. And that's because they were taking territory that Assad wanted for the Kurds near Raqqa. And so the point is that these groups all have their own objectives and their own ideologies, but they come into conflict by virtue of the fact that there's only so much space in Syria and only so many people get to have it. And then I think, yeah, that's totally right. I think you nailed it, Zach. Um, I think it's also like— extra complicated because not only are there these groups like on their own but like they're all backed by different factions of like giant world powers like you know there are some groups that are backed by the u.s and then like there are some that are backed by turkey and then there are some that like the u.s backs like the kurds that the turks really don't want us to back because the turks have their own kind of kurdish separatist movement within turkey they've been fighting for decades and they really don't want to see, like, an independent Kurdish state on their border. So, like, they're really mad that we've aligned ourselves essentially with the Kurds. We just announced just, I guess, at the end of May that we're going to start sending, like, small arms, uh, light weapons to the Kurdish forces actively. And there are a lot of people who in the U.S. and Washington who have been calling for us to, like, arm the Kurds because they're a really solid fighting force. But the problem is, like, that brings us in direct conflict with Turkey, who is our NATO ally and who also— has the Indrilik Air Base, which is kind of like a major airbase that we need to operate in that area. A phrase that I'm going to utter now that I don't think I will often utter is to defend Donald Trump for a second. <laughs> <laughs> and we can mark it that takes. we are about 20 minutes in and that phrase has already been spoken for the first time. <laughs> what Barack Obama did, which was the opposite of this, didn't work. You know, like there, right. there's a raging debate in the Jewish household over should the U.S. have armed the Syrian rebels? Should the U.S. have not armed the Syrian rebels? The U.S. ultimately, and in the case of the U.S., we're talking Barack Obama, his whole war cabinet unanimously said, arm them. He chose not to. We can debate till the end of time. I mean, they did. Like, the CIA armed a bunch of people. Not to any— yeah. not I think on, it ended up with, like, six Yeah, not any— It was the DOD program and the CIA <laughs> program. Right. But this was— No, but a, that's, this was, that's fair. There yeah. was, there was but this a, was a, a mean, But this was a meaningless thing. I mean, right. what was being advocated within the Pentagon and by the CIA was a massive program, and this was, this was an, a nothing burger. And on the table was the idea that the U.S. would do what Russia has done which was send planes, send troops, send things that were much more, you know, much more robust. And the U.S. didn't. And part of why the U.S. didn't, publicly and privately stated, was it can't work. There's no military solution. It'll be a quagmire. Wrong, 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 and wrong. Assad was losing. There was a stretch where Assad was losing so much territory. Right, true. People felt like he could be pushed towards a deal because he's getting shoved back towards Damascus. 
Russia got involved. They bombed from the air. They don't care civilians who may die from that bombing. But they basically flipped that. Assad unquestionably is now winning. The only question is, how much is he winning? Right. He's not at risk of losing Damascus. The biggest cities in Syria, like Aleppo, that the rebels had once held, they've taken back. So I think when history does look back at Barack Obama and Syria, it's not going to be judging this as a positive thing. The most you could say is that since he left office, we don't have thousands of U.S. troops fighting and dying in Syria. But what he refused to do, Russia did do, and it's worked. And that's kind of a jarring thing to accept. Right. No, no, absolutely. Um, I do want to say that just regardless of, of where you come down on, on arming or not arming, that one of the, the arguments that, that a lot of people had and, and that some in the Obama administration had for not arming the rebels was kind of the issue of, is this going to turn into what we saw in Afghanistan in like the late 70s, early 80s, where like, you know, we end up arming these groups. We can't really control who ends up with the weapons. We can't really vet these people. And then throughout the Obama administration, there was like talk about vetting. And like now we talk about vetting in terms of like refugees and Trump's like travel ban. But the buzzword used to always be like vetting. Can we vet these rebels? And what they meant was like, can we screen these rebels to make sure we're not accidentally arming like Al-Qaeda or ISIS? Because that could come back to bite us in the ass in, you know, a few years or decades. Um, we've seen that happen before. And and a lot of people who, um, some analysts who were pushing for us to, to arm the rebels were saying, like, we need to relax the vetting restrictions, right? Like, we need to do that. And there was a huge argument that people were making, like, you know, we're being too strict. But the problem is that, like, you can't really do that. Like, those, I mean, you can, but, like, Congress is already, like, members of Congress were already freaking out hardcore about, like, who we were giving these weapons to. Like, where was this going to end up? Do we know who these people are? And, like, they were already, like, whoa, 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 this is going too far. We can't do this. And then there were, like, a bunch of analysts who were, like, yeah, we need to just relax, like, the betting restrictions. And I feel like it's it's a lot more problematic just, like, you have to also factor in, like, the domestic Washington political, like, I don't know, milieu, right? Like, you have to factor that into why, like, we didn't do that. And it's also, like, a, a valid concern, right? Like, the problem is that, like, all these groups are fighting on the ground. They're sharing, like, operating bases, you know. There's a story I heard from a from a Syrian analyst about a year ago that there was this group that was fighting on the ground that was one of like the CIA backed um, groups and they had like you know been given some like rocket launchers or weapons or whatever. They were like getting incoming fire and they wanted to like respond, but they happened to be like sharing a base with a group aligned with Al Qaeda, and like the group that was there was actually the one under attack, but it was their shared base, and so the guy had to literally like get on the horn and call the CIA and was like can I get permission to fire on these people even though, like, the guy next to me happens to be maybe aligned with al-Qaeda, but, like, he's the one that's, like, closest to firing the weapon? So, like, that's not a, a really good strategy for, like, how to operate a war, right? Like, stopping every time if you're under attack to have to, like, call the CIA. Like, that's problematic. So— I also want to go further and think that yeah. that illustrates the fact that Russia's intervention may have helped tip the momentum towards Assad does not mean the U.S. intervening more forcefully on the side of the rebels— would have done the same thing. Right. For that reason, there are so many different rebel factions, often in conflict with each other, depending on the situation on the ground, some of which are jihadists who, by the way, when the U.S. did arm people, the jihadists wiped them out intentionally to make a point that the U.S. shouldn't be supporting or backing any factions, right? The Assad side is unified. Not only is it unified, but it has the supports of huge amounts of Iranians and Iranian-backed militias that are in there, and they're all fighting and operating cogently on the same side. And Iranian intervention was another key reason why that momentum was turned around. And there's just no equivalent of that on the U.S. side. So even while Assad was losing territory, if the U.S. had started flooding the zone with arms, there's no guarantee that wouldn't have prompted an Iranian counter-escalation with more troops coming in or a Russian counter-escalation, right? Like, 
it could have just made the conflict more bloody, which was right. the argument people were making at the time. And I, I don't think we can say with any certainty that the arguments the Obama administration was making were wrong about why we didn't intervene. We could end up in an even worse version of the situation we're seeing right now when there's a real risk of conflict with both Iran and Russia. And worse, I mean, because there would have been more U.S. troops directly targeting Assad. I mean, there's parts of that I agree with and parts of that I don't. But the core part of what the Obama guy said was, you cannot shift the balance if you intervene. I mean, that was sort of like the baseline argument. There are other arguments. You know, Jen, you hit a bunch of them, I think, really smartly. Like, who knows where these weapons go? Do do you have an an escalation where, like, more and more radical groups get more and more powerful weapons? But the baseline was, we can't shift the balance. And I I just don't buy that because Russia did, and our military is better and more precise. And yes, there are all the caveats of Russia is ruthless, bombs from the air, all of that. I agree with you on all of that. But the core thing of nobody could tip this, the Russians tipped it. Right. It's important to talk about, too, like what an intervention, like that's a really good point. You know, if the U.S. military wanted to full throttle, like go in, like we could handle some shit, right? Like that's, we have like the most powerful military on on the planet. Like we could, we could handle some shit. It would be a mess. And there would be like thousands of lives lost on all sides. And that would be bad. I think it's it's just interesting. I kind of just wanted to, to go back. Um, like we talk about, you know, Trump doesn't have a strategy, right? Like Obama had a strategy we didn't like it, or, you know, people just disagreed with it. I think there's one thing, and not to be like the second in defense of Donald Trump, but there is- like, Come on, Zach. You we're, join, we're, going, we're going for the hat trick. Yeah. You can join the Dear club. God, <laughs> dear God, what has happened to this Two podcast? thirds of the way there. But no, so people who study like political science and, and IR wonks, right? Like there's like kind of a long standing like tradition and understanding that like no matter what a candidate says, Republican, Democrat, no matter like, you no know, hawk dove, whatever- Whatever they say on the campaign trail, once they get into office, when it comes to foreign policy, there are only so many options that you actually have, right? There are only so many directions you can go. And I think that's actually a lot of what we've seen with Trump. I think, you know, it it obviously would probably be a lot better if he had some very clear, like, policies and, and strategies that he was trying to implement. But it's also entirely possible that, like, those strategies would also just kind of run up against reality and, like, you have to decide, like, if something happens on the ground, right? Like, he may not have wanted to, you know, to intervene or to do, you know, this or that, but, like, things all over the world happen, like North Korea, right? So, like, you have to respond regardless of, like, whether that fits into your kind of worldview or your strategy. Like, the way you respond is going to be guided by that. But I think it is important to note that, like, like Zach said, there are only like so many options in Syria and all of them are really, really shitty. And so like, no matter which one you pick, you're going to make somebody mad and you're going to make somebody upset. Also, like think about what Trump said on the campaign trail. There's like Assad isn't necessarily so bad. We need to be bombing, working really bad. with Russia to, to yes, very bad. <laughs> Jen's, <Agree. laughs> Jen subtweeting Zach's description of Donald Trump. Okay. Trump is wrong like about Assad being not so bad. Moving on. <laughs> Trump, he would, you know, said we maybe need to partner with Russia to fight ISIS. So that's like a 180-degree reversal from right. what the old U.S. strategy was, right? Like the whole thing has changed if that were to happen. Doing that, changing the entire focus of the U.S. national security and foreign policy bureaucracy, shifting their idea about how to approach Syria, is a massive undertaking. It takes a lot of work. Your staff need to be committed to it. You need like top-level supervision from the president. And Trump just doesn't have the attention span to do that. Moreover, he hasn't staffed a bunch of key foreign policy positions. Right. It takes a lot of work to execute that kind of diplomatic change. Like, I I called him dumb Nixon earlier, and I think that that's reasonable in this case because Nixon really did execute a bunch of major policy shifts on China, 
Vietnam and stuff like that. Definitely. He did so because he had a very defined idea. A lot of it was evil, but it was a defined idea about <laughs> what he wanted to do. Trump may have had that idea, but didn't have the competence to execute it. Right. And I'm not even sure how committed he was to that idea to begin with. But I think there are, there are two separate things. And I want to push back a little bit. One, when we're talking strategy and we're talking ends and means, the big, big, big question, really the only question that ultimately kind of matters is Bashar al-Assad. Do we accept, can we accept that he stays in power? Right. Or are we going to do everything we can to push him out of power? And frankly, the Obama guys were never clear on that either. The stated policy was he's got to go. The actual policy was, well, Eventually, point, maybe. Right, eventually, maybe. Mm-hmm. Trump, they've gone, admittedly, publicly, they've gone back, forth, back, forth, and then back, forth again. And different members of the staff had said different right. things. Often yeah. the same week, right? Like, <laughs> I remember like, that. Rex Tillerson, everyone's favorite charismatic secretary of state, kind of <laughs> said like, yeah, you know, Trump, he can, aside can kind of stay, it's not for us to decide. And then Trump's like, nope, he's got to go. And then Nikki Haley kind of came in and said sort of a mixture of the two. But there's the big, big, big question of does Assad have to go or can we live with him? Right now, it seems to be we can live with them. But then beneath that, you know, there's this question of how do we, if we shift, how do we shift? And Zach, the only reason I want to push back on this a little bit is what we're seeing, I think, with the speed with which the Pentagon is beginning to do more and more and more in Syria is that it isn't a question of like Trump competence to get this thing shifting. It's a question of Trump pulling off the leash and let the Pentagon go forward. And I want to be careful because, you know, a lot of us have experience with the military. We spend time with it. You know, Jen is dating a member of the military. Um, <laughs> when I lived in Iraq and Afghanistan, I spent a lot of time with the military. The perception of the military as this, like, bloodthirsty, raving to go to war institution is totally false. Right. That said, the perception of the military wanting to do nothing in Syria has also been shown false because in a matter of weeks, they've shot down a plane, some drones, and want to build bases. So I agree that there's the confidence question. But in terms of what the military wants to do and can do, they're moving pretty quickly. Yeah, sorry. I, I guess what I meant was the competence to move towards a overtly pro-Assad policy, which is not what anyone in the military or the State Department really wanted, right? And that's what Trump was proposing on the campaign trail. To do that would have meant overriding the instincts you're talking about. The military did want to do more in Syria against Assad. They didn't want to do more to back up the Russians. And that's what Trump seemed to want on the campaign trail. And so he would have had to really fight with the bureaucracy to shift to that position. And now it just, it doesn't seem like that's even on the table anymore because now we're we're going in the complete opposite direction because the military has control over the policy. I think there's one like big piece that we haven't quite talked about. We've flicked at it a little bit, but I mean, there's a really big question of like strategy in terms of like, like you said, like Bashar al-Assad, you know, should stay or should he go? And like, that is like the big pivotal question, right? The kind of next logical question is like, either way, then what, right? And Especially, like, if Assad goes, then what? Like, what comes after Syria? Like, the uh, the war? You know, like, what What do you do? I mean, there are so many different factions on the ground fighting for different things. Right now, they have a reason to sort of put aside their differences somewhat. They're still fighting. But, um, you know, and focus on Assad or focus on ISIS or both. But, I mean, we have different groups who have radically different ideas for what the future of Syria should look like. I mean, you have everything on the spectrum from, like, a free, democratic, like, you know, pluralistic society to something that looks a whole lot like, you know, the kind of al-Qaeda, maybe not, like, the level of brutality of, like, the ISIS caliphate, but, like, an overtly, like, Islamic political country that's that's run— under, you know, like a very kind of strict interpretation like Syrian, of Islam. Like Syrian Taliban, basically. Right. Like, and so you have the whole like range in between. And like right now they're kind of all fighting together against Assad, right? But 
when that goes away, then you're going to have them all fighting each other for control and for power, which means that, like, even once you deal with, like, the big kind of— it's like there are layers of civil war here. Like, there are layers to this war that, like, if you solve one— then you just have to go to the next level down. Like, okay, now do we solve this? Because, and when I say we, I mean, like, I think there's another question we need to talk about is like how much, you know, can and should the U.S. do? And, you know, what are our interests and things like that? But I think it's really important to to realize that like even like the biggest questions in Syria right now, like, and that's the long-term strategic thinking that we're missing. Right. Like, I think we're at one of those pivot points you're describing. Right. You're right. There are different – the layers metaphor, I think, is, like, brilliant for thinking about this, right? Thanks. So we've been working for the past three years to peel off the ISIS layer, right? right? And that one's almost done. It's been clear for about a year and a half, two years to smart military analysts that ISIS could no longer maintain its caliphate and right. that eventually it was going to lose. And so the question became, like, what do you do after it's no longer a territorial war against ISIS, Mm -hmm. trying to take back population centers and large swaths of territory, right? Do you refocus on fighting ISIS as a terrorist group when it kind of hides among the population rather than trying to govern them? Mm -hmm. Do you expand the war to try to intervene in the rest of it? And that's the pivot point we're we're facing right now Mm -hmm. in both Iraq and Syria, by the way. In Iraq— ISIS is on the verge of losing Mosul, its capital there, and the last major population center it controls. And it's on the verge of losing Raqqa in Syria. So with those two gone, the caliphate is functionally non-existent, right? It's it's small. It's scattered. It's no longer a serious territorial presence. Right. And you really have a question of the old strategy becoming obsolete, and a new strategy needs to be put in place. Right. And like that means, as you said, long-term, big-picture strategic thinking— and I, don't, I just don't know. I don't know what yeah. the but something, strategy is. But something has to be put in place before the strategy, which is the end state. Right. I mean, that, that's kind of what we're, we're sort of dancing around and skipping over a little bit. The, you know, Jen, you said this before, and it's exactly right. Strategy is the means to get to an end. Right. And what we need to decide if we're, if what we're the, the U.S. What the fuck is the end? What's the end? Is the end that it's something— Because I think what's often lost when people talk about Syria a little bit is people look at Assad and think, holy hell, this guy gasses his own people, uses barrel bombs against his own people. Why would anybody— back Bashar al-Assad? Why would his military fight and die on behalf of a guy who's bombing his own cities? You know, I've spent time in Syria. Syria was not before this, this like hellscape of of war like Afghanistan was. This was a, not democratic certainly, but it was a secular country. It had functioning Vibrant roads, culture. schools. Aleppo right. was a magnificent city. I mean, spent spending great time food in, the, in the old chick. It was yeah. great food. But this was like a, a, a functional country. This wasn't like people, I think, sometimes look in Syria and think, ah, this is just Yemen or Afghanistan or countries that we kind of all know are hellholes. Syria was not a hellhole. Part of why it wasn't a hellhole was the different groups within Syria, the Christians, some of the Bashar al-Assad's own Alawites, some of the Sunnis, they felt he is the person keeping this country together, that this country is basically functioning because you've got a strong government, the rights of minorities are protected, the rights of women are protected. No, he was imprisoning dissidents and probably torturing. Sure, sure, sure. Right, yeah. that's what okay. prompted the uprising yeah, that led yeah, to yeah. this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to be th- fair. A thousand percent. This is not <laughs> like, this is not the defend Bashar al-Assad hour. Uh, yeah, okay. all, I didn't all, want to do all that. All it is is like, they understand why people are willing to fight for Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. Because I think like, right, especially you, you the understand why an ISIS person who's willing to fight to death would fight for their belief. I think it's not as hard to figure out like, why would an Assad soldier die for a murdering thug? And I just think it's worth understanding kind of that that's why. Right, like the the identity kind of issue, the Alawis. So yeah, I mean, so they're they're you know a small minority kind of sect offshoot of Shia Islam 
um, which is, you know, in itself the smaller of the two branches of Islam. And so, like, there are a lot of, you know, Alawis who probably don't like Bashar al-Assad that much, but who see that him and, you know, and the government that, you know, structure that he represents and that he commands as the guarantor of their safety. So there's a lot of fear that if kind of Sunni jihadists were to, to take over, that, like, they would then proceed to launch a, a campaign to kind of push out the the Alawis and the Christians, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's really important to talk about, like, the identity kind of issue of what's going on. I also want to just kind of go back to a point that Zach raised about kind of ISIS and, like, what comes next after they they lose. So one thing I think Trump has done uh, – there are a few things I think he's done a bad job at, but uh, – to be fair. But one thing is kind of really understanding and communicating to, like, the American public, like, what the terrorist threat is, right? So – if you get rid of ISIS's caliphate, that does not actually get rid of ISIS. Like, you can destroy them on the ground. It would be a significant blow, to be sure, right? Like, it would be both, like, in terms of, like, physical, you know, capabilities on the ground um, and, you know, planning and, and operational and all kinds of stuff. Like, that, their infrastructure is there. But they also have, like, the other component, which is, like, the propaganda, like, recruiting. And so the attacks that we've seen, you know, a lot of them, especially the ones in the U.S., like, didn't originate in the sense of, you know, being, like, actively planned and kind of executed from Raqqa or from Mosul. They, you know, they issue these calls, but those calls are out there. And so I think it's really important that, like, we need to actually also, if we're, like, going to bomb the hell out of ISIS, like, that sounds really great on paper, I guess, or at a campaign rally, but that's not an actual counterterrorism strategy. Like, it doesn't actually do a whole lot when it comes to the American domestic, like, the threat to the, to the U.S. homeland. And I think that is where you end up having that problem where you don't have a broader kind of strategy, you don't have the broader infrastructure, you don't have people at the State Department who are running, you know, CVE, countering violent extremism programs. You don't have, like, a broader political, social kind of program to deal with, like, all of the facets of terrorism that, that we have. And so I just think it's really important to, like, point out that even if we bomb the hell out of ISIS and they don't exist, like, on the ground, like, that doesn't mean that the terrorist threat from ISIS is over. But, but let's circle back a little bit to, to how we, to what we were talking about at, at the beginning, which is the, the expansion of the U.S. war. Because I, I agree with you. I and mean, I think that beating ISIS, ISIS is now an idea. It's metastasized. It's no right. longer just a caliphate. But back on the ground in Syria, like, the risk of this is just so extraordinary to me. And part of when we're thinking about conventional wisdom just being so fucking wrong so often, <laughs> with Russia, the conventional wisdom was Donald Trump loves Vladimir Putin. He's his new best friend. He will come to office, lift sanctions on Russia. He will try to repair ties with Russia. He'll try to soften things with Russia. In Syria, we'll fight together in this great kumbaya moment of airstrikes and, kumbaya. and, and carnage on the ground. Uh, and none of that has happened. I mean, it, it, again, it's just sort of like the the opposite. It's like you're, you're looking through this dark mirror where you're seeing the opposite of what you, you thought you would see. And how risky is this? I don't want to overstate things and get us into the realm of just like nightmares that won't happen, but right. but how realistic do we think it is that something happens with a U.S. plane and a Russian plane and it's really bad? I'll, I'll be honest. I'm super scared. I, I thought that during the campaign, the scariest thing about Trump was that he, had a, he would have mixed signals on Russia. He would sound like he was friendly to the Russians, but his military policy and practice would be kind of hostile. And that would cause the Russians to think they could do more than they actually could without American retaliation. I thought the biggest risk of this would be in the Baltics, right? In right. places like Estonia and Latvia, where there's actually like, you know, US allies that were obligated to defend at risk that Russia might try to fuck with. Right now, 
we're seeing that exact dynamic play out in Syria. The Russians kind of seem to think that Trump would let them get away with more than he would. And now the U.S. military is actively shooting at Russian allies, and the Russians are threatening to shoot at American allies. Well, Americans, sorry. Americans themselves, they are shooting at American allies. Right. And that's terrifying. Like, it's terrifying because, you know, at any point, if, like, one person in a split second decides, you know, Russian or American pilot, that this situation means they need to take the action into their own hands, either for political reasons or just to defend themselves because they think the other side is likely to hurt them, that could escalate out of control. I'm not saying there's any certainty that this happens. I'm saying that the uncertainty in policy puts us in a situation where this is a real risk. I don't think an American plane shooting down a Russian one in Syria would cause World War III. But the fact that I even have to say that— Right, is a little trouble. <laughs> yeah, it really bothers right. me. So there's one—and I totally agree. That's definitely um, how—I mean, I, I remember kind of looking at Syria, like, you know, even two years ago and thinking, like, oh, that's, you know, it's like, we're not there yet. Like, that's not going to happen. And now it's like, oh, that's a little—getting a little closer. Um, but one thing that I think the point about conventional wisdom is really important, and the fact that, like, we've—you know, we can collectively have gotten— so much wrong and like, oh, you know, it's going to come out this way, it's going to turn out this way, and then it doesn't, you know, whether it's, you know, elections or Brexit, I mean, it's kind of everything. And one of the big things that deals with the the threat and like what could possibly happen in terms of escalation is the conventional wisdom about what Russia's interests are in Syria. So we kind of think about like, you know, well, they want to defend Assad and keep him in power, right? Like that's the basic one. They also want to keep their, their bases and their ports um, that they have that are really important there. But the conventional wisdom is like, you know, Russia wouldn't go so far, right? Like there's a there's a tipping point that they won't go past. And that's kind of been like the the operating conventional wisdom, right? That we can go so far, but like Russia wouldn't really risk a war with us. But the fact that like we've been wrong on so much and misjudged the actions of so many different kind of actors in the international stage doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence that we actually know with 100% certainty what the fuck Russia would be willing to do. And the fact that we don't is really, really scary. So part of what's really fun, I think, about, about this job is getting tweets in between the trolling tweets and the often anti-Semitic tweets uh, from really smart people who read Vox and thankfully are interested in what, what it is we write about and now what we're talking about. The people who I hope will be the kind of community that develops around, around this podcast. Subscribe. Subscribe. Uh, Definitely subscribe. <laughs> definitely subscribe and definitely, definitely subscribe. But Apple Podcasts. I got an email from someone a couple of days ago that made a really good point. I, I was talking about, about Syria in one other place, and it was a parent writing about children as the metaphor for Syria, which as a parent with children, I kind of immediately liked. And she was saying at home with her kids who are a few years apart, she can always tell who's going to win the fight based on which kid seems to want the thing more. Right. So if one of her kids gets like obsessed with Elmo, one of my kids is, and it's a nightmare. And the other kid doesn't want right. Elmo quite as badly. The first kid's going to win. With Russia and Syria, it's been a question of who wants it more. Right. Right. Do they want it more or does the U.S. want it more? And We don't really want it much. We don't really want it, right? So if, if you're Russia, this question of like, do we get to a tipping point? You might get to a tipping point because Russia is willing to go to a tipping point because Russia really is all in on Syria and we're not. And right. if we're not all in, you're not going to win. But even if we were, if we're all in and they're all in, then it seems like that creates a certainty of also a really big problem. I I don't know if we could will our way out of this if the Russians saw our, like if we were 100% committed to Syria and they saw our resolve that they'd back down. I think they might 
equally see this as a situation where they they would engage in a proxy conflict. And like we had this during the Cold War. Yeah, but I think the problem is that they do know that we don't want it. Yeah, that's and that, also true. And that's that they're, they're willing to kind of push oh. back. But like you said, because it, it's so opaque what Trump actually thinks and wants and would do, like I'm not actually sure what the fuck he wants in Syria, <laughs> yeah. which means that like neither do the Russians. Not going to talk about collusion. You know, maybe there's a back channel and they do know what he wants in Syria. I don't know, but I'm guessing probably not. But like the fact that there's like, it's not strategic ambiguity. It's just straight up ambiguity. It's like a strategic ambiguity. At least, at least with the Obama administration, Russia knew they don't care about Syria, right? Like, I guess that's useful to know. Like, at least you know, like who on the ground wants different things and what they're kind of working for on the ground. Now, like nobody fucking has any clue. I'm going to now very gracefully shift <laughs> us to our second segment of the show, which courtesy of our brilliant colleague, Julie Bogan, is called Elsewhere. This is going to be something where we try to talk in the first half about one place, often a place that's more in the news, and the second, a place that sometimes is less than news, but but really should be. And now we'll we'll move to the Syria of Europe known as France. Um, <laughs> the Syria of Europe? The Syria of Europe. What are you talking about? It's just like transition, man. Okay. You, okay. you grab the threads that you can. The Aleppo of the continent. The no? Doesn't work. Okay. Guys, shut it down. Um, At least we're not talking about Elmo anymore. <laughs> but the reason we kind of want to talk about Syria, and, I, and I'll, I'll kick it to both of you because you both know more about France than, than I do, is the one leader we know in Europe that Donald Trump despises. He doesn't like Angela Merkel. He may not really like what's happening in England, but the one that he despises is Emmanuel Macron, the president of France. He was everything Donald Trump in many ways isn't. He's articulate. He's someone who's charismatic in a way that doesn't evolve just kind of a lot of fifth grade level English or, or French. He's someone who is the womanizing, heroic, conquering stud that Donald Trump might, might wish he could be. But he's also a really effective politician. I mean, it wasn't long ago that the narrative in France was they may elect a far-right president, Marine Le Pen, might actually win the French presidency. Right. Instead, Emmanuel Macron wins. He meets Donald Trump. He gives Donald Trump this like, and if you haven't seen this on YouTube, YouTube, after you finish listening and subscribing, he gives Trump this kind of bone-crushing handshake where neither one's going to let go. And Macron is just shaking and shaking and shaking. And he even put up his arm to block that like Trump move where he like jerks the other person in like close. And he like, Macron put up his arm and like, against Trump's shoulder and like blocked him like, nah, man, it's not going to happen. And then after blocking him and saying, nah, man, it's not going to happen, he lumped Trump in with, literally lumped him in with Putin and the president of Turkey as if to say, you got to push back at these kind of thuggish guys. Anyway, so this guy is now the, one of the most popular and powerful leaders in the history of France. What happened? So he just, to, to like set the stage even further, France just had legislative elections and he just won an outright majority with a new party. This is a country that had a two-party system that seemed as stable as the American one, and he won a va- like a large majority of seats with an entirely new centrist party, which contained people like a self-described Lady Gaga of math, a dude who had giant floppy hair and wore a spider brooch and had no political experience, like at all. And now he's literally in parliament. Right. And like, so how how did this happen is a really fascinating question. The sense that I get, and you know, when I was in France a bit ago, you could see that everyone was really excited about Macron. There was a cover of a magazine that had little hearts next to his face and kissy faces and stuff like that. It said Macron mania as the big thing. <laughs> and there was like a real sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo in French politics. Right. Right. People, the socialist government that had been in power beforehand had mismanaged the economy and generally had sort of not followed through on its promises. And so they were unpopular. 
Then there was a huge scandal involving the Republicans, the center-right party. And so it became a choice, essentially, between this far-right front national and Macron, who is this sort of charismatic, good-looking centrist. And he managed to position himself by virtue of not being part of the Socialist Party, even though he had been until he quit the cabinet to run for office as part of a new party, as a fresh face, as someone who could channel anti-establishment rage. And even though, here's the crucial part, he has the most establishmentarian politics of virtually anybody, right? He's this basically center-left guy who— He's a banker. Yeah. Like, he's part of, like, the international banking globalist coalition. That's what's fascinating about it, is it suggests that when people talk about rage at the establishment in Western politics, they assume that it means support for radical policies, but it doesn't necessarily. It means that there's frustration with the people who have had power and blame on them for things having gone wrong. And they're willing to embrace people with a wide variety of ideologies. In the U.S., you saw Donald Trump win, who has a basically far-right set of views on most issues. And then in the U.K., Jeremy Corbyn, who has a very far-left set of views, did surprisingly well, though he didn't win. His partisans want you to think he did. He did not win the last election. But he did surprisingly well, right? And again, it seems that in all these cases, people have managed to channel anti-establishment sentiment. And Macron has done it more effectively than anyone, as far as I can tell. That's absolutely right, Zach. And like one thing, just to make clear, like the Lady Gaga of math, um, Cedric Villani. I'm glad we're back um, to him. Yeah, well, but like this is a serious thing. Like, so it's not just him. There like was a self-taught cyber guru. There was like an economist who um, was orphaned during the Rwandan genocide. There were a couple of people who ran but didn't actually get There's in. There's a like, professional handball player. Yeah, because, a because female handball. professional handball player, which I'm still not entirely sure what that is. I feel like it's some sort of <laughs> sport ball. I'm not really clear. But those people aren't in parliament by accident, right? Like, it's not just like some weird freak, like fluke thing. That was like a specific policy of Macron's to bring in people who had no political experience, right? Like, that was part of the outsider anti-establishment, like, thrust that he was he was campaigning on. So I think he he had said that he wanted like f- at least 50% to be women and he wanted you know, people who who hadn't served in politics and it was part of this like you know get out the old guard bring in a fresh new you know thing so like while we're like oh how it's funny that like these people who are kind of like weird kind of kooky different characters we wouldn't expect to be in politics but like in a lot of ways like that's it's exactly what he wanted right like you want to bring in the regular people who were just across different you know walks of life in France and be like, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Like, run for office. Why don't you, you know, come on in and be part of parliament and help make things better? And these people, you know, the professional handball player, like, she was really good. Like, she was, I think, captain of the team for, you know, a couple different times. But she quit her professional career to go run for office and to be in parliament on purpose because these people are passionate and they want to kind of make something better. And so I think it's it's important to recognize that these aren't just like random fringe things. This is a specific thing that Macron was trying to do on purpose. I think it's also important to recognize that what Macron did was kind of remarkable. And again, you know, Zach, I think you hit this exactly right. He took himself, although he's a, f- a creature of the establishment, went to the best schools, you know, wealthy, kind of a good looking guy, uh, made his career, as you say, Jen, as a member of the, the global financial elite, but portrayed himself as like an outsider. But it's also worth noting that among this like wave of people who were elected, there were a lot of kind of conventional people too, right? So Macron managed to get a lot of press, in some cases deservedly, by making sure that it was racially diverse and in terms of its gender breakdown, uh, there were a lot of also old white guys. And it, it's just, right. it is worth noting that like, it's not as if the French parliament is now stocked only with female handball players. Right. There's still a lot of white guys mixed in with the female but didn't handball like, players. F- I think it, the count is now up to four people that he's officially kicked out of the cabinet or have resigned, which I think is interesting. Like, 
it does seem to kind of send this message, like for various reasons, like, you know, corruption or, or whatever's going on. Um, and I, I don't know the details enough to know, but that he is kind of in some ways still interested in, in cleaning house or draining the swamp, if you will. And like, you know, if you're not going to get on board and you're not going to be part of like this program, then you're welcome to leave the cabinet. That's the thing about this sort of unsettled status quo in Western politics now. All these different new movements and new ideas are coming into power. They need to show that they actually are going to fulfill their promises. Right. And like now Macron has unquestioned control of the French government and the legislature. He can do what he wants to do. And if what he does makes people's lives better or seems to give us a sense that French society is improving, then his movement will be deemed a success. If not, the far right in France, which was decimated in the last election, could make a comeback or one of the other previously major parties could make a comeback with a new set of ideas, right? It's And the same thing in the U.S. Trump's popularity, really based on the special elections we've seen, appears to be really hurting the Republican Party. Even they, you know, they had some squeakers in very heavily Republican districts. And, you know, you'll see this in Germany is an interesting example because the establishment still controls everything, but you're not seeing a lot of anti-establishment rage. Angela Merkel's lead has actually gone up as the campaign has gone on. It looked like Angela, Zach. Angela. I know. Get sorry. It, get it right. All right. Angela Merkel. Um, her lead has gone up as the campaign has gone on. It looked like it would be tight for a little bit, but she's gotten more and more popular. It's a great example of how while there might be this sense of anti-establishment sentiment, if a politician is deemed to be doing a pretty good job at representing the interests of their people, which I think on any objective metric she has, although sometimes to the detriment of non-Germans, uh, like Greek people, most fundamentally, uh, that th they'll manage to hold on to power. I will say, I think that that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. But I think there's also potentially, and, and I don't know French politics enough to know that specific case, but there's also potentially the case that that by being able to like push all these policies, I mean, the fact that he's a centrist probably really helps. But it just made me think of, you know, when, when Obama came in, right, like he got a lot done that he wanted. I mean, he was blocked, you know, in a lot of ways by, by the Republican Congress. But, you know, the fact that he did manage to push kind of more, you know, liberal policies and things like health care, like that in and of itself provoked a huge backlash on the right in terms of like, whoa, things are changing way too much. So maybe that won't happen because Macron, like I said, is a centrist. And a white guy. There's also that. He is also a white guy. Um, so there is that. But, you know, there is the case that like he is very, you know, globalist and pro-EU and, um, you know, wants to make the planet great again um, in terms of climate change. So there is, you know, the case that, you know, he's even, I think he's pro-immigration, -immig I mean, yeah, pro-EU, right? No, he is pro Which means that like, if he kind of continues to go down that road and if there's a certain segment of French society that feels like that's like really taking the country in the wrong direction, it could also provoke a right-wing backlash. I mean, there's also, you know, to, to the reasons why someone like Macron is as popular as he is and someone like Angela Merkel is as popular as she is, there is also the Trump effect. I mean, I don't want us to suggest in any way that like European politics on the whole are being dictated by Donald Trump. Dear God. But if you hate Donald Trump, and if you are able to show your public that you not only hate him, but you've got the guts to push back at him, right. in the case of Macron, literally, literally push back, physically push back. Push back. That's a great thing to have in, in your country. I mean, remember, Barack Obama got involved in some of these elections, which is rare for a, a recently yeah, retired U.S. formally president. endorsed formally Macron. Formally endorsed Macron. Yeah. Um, and had a bro phone call. If you haven't seen, again, if you haven't seen the clip after you finish subscribing to our podcast, look up the clip of Macron Having Apple his conference podcasts. call, his, uh, 
uh, Google Play, uh, <laughs> having his call with, with Obama, Macron is like giddy. He's as giddy as like if, if, you know, one of us was talking to Obama and was suddenly like, it's the president, Mr. President, can we ask you stuff? But it was a president, the soon to be president. I'd like to think I'd be professional about that. I would like to think you would too, Zach. I'm just not convinced. But the uh, actually, I, I am. I love you, Zach. Um, but it, it's just, it is worth noting just that if you hate Donald Trump and you can show your public that you're willing to fight Donald Trump, that's a really good thing politically in Europe in the same way that it might be here. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We don't know for sure that that effect is happening, though it seems, and, and again, I was just in Europe and that was sort of the sense that I got is Trump is just massively unpopular among everyone there. Talk to anyone and they're like, what the hell is wrong with you Americans? Um, even people on the right. But, to be fair, they've said that for a while true. about different things. But they didn't but, say that about <laughs> Obama as much. <laughs> right. Yeah, mostly about guns. Mostly. But there, there's one example in the, in the French parliamentary election I think is really telling here. So there's this guy, he's 27 years old. Uh, he was orphaned in the Rwandan genocide. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name correctly, but it's Hervé Bervy, I think is the right way to do it. And he had been working as a researcher in Kenya. He's an economist. And he said, and this is a quote that I'll read, the day after Trump's election in November, I resigned and returned. Uh, he went back to France to participate in politics because he saw a far-right populist backlash brewing internationally and right. he wanted to fight it. Right? And I think that really demonstrates that there's a kind of internationalization of Western politics going on where there's a sense that these domestic political movements impinge on common ideas and common problems and blocking immigration and challenging the European Union and threatening NATO. You can't say that's a French problem or an American problem or a British problem. These are all the things that we've built together that we call the liberal international order, right? right. And that far-right populism in any one country threatens the order for all of those countries, all the major ones anyway. And so people are starting to react more to trends in other Western countries than they did in the past. Like, I can't imagine in the 90s hearing any French politician being like, oh yeah, when Bill Clinton was elected, I felt the need to oppose international neoliberalism. Or frankly, even in the George Bush era, as unpopular as he yeah. was for obvious reasons, right. you didn't hear politicians say, I moved back so I could fight George W. Bush. Right. <laughs> it was just not, that wasn't a thing, right? right. It, there wasn't the same sense of fundamental threat right. that you get from Donald Trump. That's a really good point. And with that, Thank you for listening to the first episode of Worldly, the first of many. We'll be back next Thursday. Please subscribe. Uh, rate us, review us. That'll help other people see us. It'll help other people realize that it's something they should listen to, which is obvious. So come on, help us build this community around the show. A couple thank yous before we do uh, to Ezra, Matt, and Sarah, because the format that we're using is because a very smart format that they use has worked. We want to try to have as smart a conversation as we can week after week deep dive after deep dive to Peter Leonard, our producer, to Julie Bogan, Nishat Kurwa, Allison Rocky, Bird Pinkerton, kind of the podcast crew here at Vox. This literally would not happen without all of those very, very talented people. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. We and love you. We'll see all of you next week. Bye. Bye. Forecast action. Yeah. Fucking, can I get a high five, man? Yeah.